creeds and criticism meet. of reference podcast. Welcome back to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. This is Allison. And this is Nick. And today we'll be talking about one of the more neglected passages for gender theology, 1 Corinthians 7. It's the only passage that overtly speaks of authority or um, in the between the husband and wife relationship. And so it's interesting that it really isn't covered very much. No, it's, it's a simple passage. It's not a... Uh, well, you'd think it has the things they like, authority, yeah, husband and wife. Husband and wife. Yeah. Uh, salvation, sanctification mm-hmm. language, especially. Huh. So one yeah. of those weird passages that gets neglected for some reason. Yeah, I wonder. Hmm. And our roadmap for today, we're going to be talking about our holiday reading. We're going to be doing a beer tasting. No, yeah, no, we're well, not. Allison's going to be. We're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. The whole chapter is really rich, but we're going to limit ourselves because we'd be here for hours. And then we're going to close off with some recommended reading. Yeah, and we'll probably come back to 1 Corinthians 7 another time when we're doing other topics. But for now, we're going through, we're concentrating on gender theology. And so mm-hmm. it pains us to have to cut it, but... You got to trim some stuff here and there. But okay, so first on our roadmap is our holiday reading. So Allison, what have you been reading or what are you reading now? It was a Karl Marx Christmas. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so um, we haven't really finished our readings. This is stuff that we started while we have a I've got a dozen books, so I can't read all of them. Yeah, and you're only going <laughs> to mention a couple. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm doing Das Kapital, and I also got the Communist Manifesto. Um, but the Karl other books... Why are you reading Karl Marx? Well... <laughs> I think it's pertinent nowadays, given oh. some renewed interest in communism. Oh, okay. So, yes, fun stuff. Very fun. Oh, yeah. oh you know, what? I just have to read this like title of my book. Uh, uh, sorry, the the top of my book. It's kind of the, the Karl Marx book. Yeah, international bestseller, the landmark bestselling author that influenced and inspired millions of readers worldwide. That's kind of dark. At if least you the think ones about that are it. alive, you know. Yeah, except inspired. for the ones that are. <laughs> And the other book you're reading? Um, Nick actually got it for me for Christmas, which I'm happy about. It's a manifesto for a theological interpretation. Very nice. So it's not the Communist Manifesto. It's a different one. It's certainly preferable to it, I imagine. A more bright one um, by Craig Bartholomew and um, Heath Thomas. Very nice. Yeah, I've got a dozen books over there, but the first one... Or the two that I've been reading the most is uh, An Anomalous Jew by Mike Bird. Hi, Mike. And uh, the other one is a book edited by Ben Blackwell and a few other people. I forget exactly who the editors are, but it's called Paul and the Apocalyptic Imagination. Got articles in there by N.T. Wright, Doug Campbell, and a bunch of people talking about the Apocalyptic Paul or the Bartian Paul. So that's that's those are what I've been reading right now. Okay, let's go to the passage. No, no, we gotta, before we talk about uh, sacred scripture, we've got sacred liquor. What Allison is going to be drinking for our beer no. tasting is Big Bad Baptist, an imperial stout by Epic Brewing. So, Allison. Haven't I already had this at one point? I, I don't remember. And I so have. No, no, I've probably tasted no, it already. No, you haven't. You, you need to have it. You're a Baptist, you need to drink it. <laughs> and she sniffs. It kind of smells like, a little bit like coffee. Yep. Um... I suppose it has a rich taste. Ugh, okay, I'm okay, done. I will I'm try done. the rest of this. All right, so. For what it is, if you like beer, you're going to really like this. Uh-huh. Ah. Sacred liquor indeed. All right, so. Why do people like this? No, really, why do people like beer? Uh, I mean, 
There are. It's the flavor. It's the texture. It's, okay, this does have a decent af aftertaste. Yep, the, I will admit a, that there's a bitter kind of cocoa kind of aftertaste. A little coffee, you know, that good yeah. coffee aftertaste. Kind of like a mo. This one's kind of more like a mocha. It's yeah. the fermentation. Um, it's Ugh. the alcohol that kind of warms you a bit. Well, it's a very high alcohol content, but that's what Scotch whiskey is for. Well, no, that's what that's. But see that that has such a high alcohol content. That's what you taste. This you don't taste the alcohol. Beer, if it's good. You could have 13%, like a dragon's milk or something like that, and you will not taste the alcohol. <laughs> You'll feel it. And the once the beer warms up, the alcohol flavor becomes more pronounced. The beer becomes more complex. And yeah, so when this one, the Big Bad Baptist, becomes more like room temp or lukewarm, the coffee will really kind of come out. So I'll be drinking this for the next, well, who am I kidding? It's going to take me 15 minutes to drink it. But mm. you should drink it, you know, over a Ugh. span of like two hours. So anyway, that is our sacred liquor. <sighs> and now we're going to yes. talk about sacred scripture. Yay, scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, were, was I going to introduce the context Yeah, why don't first? you introduce okay. the context first, because it's kind of interesting. Yeah, the, 1 Corinthians uh, 7 doesn't begin with chapter 7. Is yeah, it? and we're, just so you guys know, we're going to, after 7, like, next time we'll do 11, and then we're going to do 14. Chapter so 11, yeah. We figured covers. we'll just stay in the book. Yeah, I'll just continue on with that. And so, uh, chapter 7 obviously has seven or six chapters before it in 1 Corinthians. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we'll start with chapter 5 because a big thing that chapter 7 has is, I'll just briefly mention it and then we'll work backwards real quick. Chapter 7 begins with a peri day construction. So kind of uh, for this reason or because of something. So, uh, so uh, 1 Corinthians 7 one begins with, I'm writing to you for this reason. Yeah, so a lot of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians is specific things yeah. that he wants to cover. It's a response or a clarification or something like that. It's kind of hard to tell exactly. Is it kind of like concerning this that you said? Yeah, concerning, concerning this. this yeah, this, he'll, this, he'll give this. a sentence. So for example, I'll read uh, seven one real quick. Hmm. So uh, concerning that which you wrote, oh. it is good for a man or a person, but a man not to touch a woman. Okay, so and what so, are yeah? So what are some other instances? And so uh, you have that construction in chapter eight, you know, concerning the meat and idols. You have that in chapter eleven concerning the spiritual things, and you have it in chapter sixteen as kind of a capstone to the epistle. Okay. And so it's it's kind of he's responding, it seems, or he's clarifying. Um, but in chapter five, verse nine, and I'm going to read from the Common English Bible, Paul says, uh, "I wrote to you, the Corinthians, in my earlier letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people." And so if this is, uh, he's responding to a letter previously written to him, and uh, we don't have that letter. It's one of those great little things that all New Testament nerds freak out about. We don't have it, so that's when we start speculating. But, and so chapter 5, uh, in response to this, he talks about sexual immorality, the case of the man having a stepmother in chapter 5, uh, associating with, not to associate with greedy swindlers and idolaters who call themselves brother or sister yeah uh chapter six about lawsuits and you have the the famous vice list those who are not inheriting the kingdom of god immoral idolaters uh se sexuality or immoral sexuality thieves greedy drunks abusive and just and on we and know on this kind of already infiltrated the church too and yeah. we'll see that a lot in uh, chapter 11 well, too. specifically in ch uh, 6 11 it says this is what some of you used to be so it's not yeah. as if these people are immune have been immune from this sort of right lifestyles or status symbols or something like that and so, uh, so chapter seven is kind of a, a response against sexual immorality, but it's also a clarification of Paul's mm. own kind of thoughts and probably uh, correction of probably misunderstandings of him. Yeah. And so, um, okay, so that's the context before we even begin chapter seven. So Allison, did you want to read uh, chapter seven for us? Yeah, I'll go ahead and read uh, seven, one through 16. And we, again, we were, we had some difficulty because we think, um, Verse 17 is also relevant, but then it gets into a whole nother section, and 
we just can't it's cover not an everything. unrelated topic but it's yeah we, we have to cut off somewhere otherwise we'd be here for hours yeah yeah all right so um and i'm gonna actually be reading from the ceb the common common english bible mm-hmm. and we we just took a look at it and we thought it did the best job and um some people might find uh verse one a little confusing but the ceb makes it more clear with with the quotations yeah um so i'll go ahead and start now now about what you wrote it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband because of sexual immorality the husband should meet his wife's sexual needs and the wife should do the same for her husband the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does Don't refuse to meet each other's needs unless you both agree for a short period of time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together again so that Satan might not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm saying this to you, uh, wait, I'm saying this to give you permission. It's not a command. I wish all people were like me, but each has a particular gift from God. One has this gift and another has that one. I'm telling those who are single and widows that it's good for them to stay single like me. But if they can't control themselves, they should get married, because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I'm passing on the Lord's command to those who are married. A wife shouldn't leave her husband, but if she does leave him, then she should stay single or be reconciled to her husband. And a man shouldn't divorce his wife. I'm telling everything, uh, or, I'm sorry, I'm telling everyone else, the Lord didn't say this specifically. If a believer has a wife who doesn't believe and she agrees to live with him, then he shouldn't divorce her. If a woman has a husband who doesn't believe, and he agrees to live with her, then she shouldn't divorce him. The husband who doesn't believe belongs to God because of his wife, and the wife who doesn't believe belongs to God because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be contaminated by the world, but now they are spiritually set apart. But if a spouse who doesn't believe chooses to leave, then let them leave. The brother or sister isn't tied down in these circumstances. God has called you to peace. How do you know as a wife if you will save your husband? Or how do you know as a husband if you will save your wife? I just noticed something really awesome here that I hadn't noticed before. Okay, go. All right, all right. Uh, Plutarch, I think it was, talked about a a contemporary of Paul, Greco-Roman guy, basically said a wife should adopt her husband's religion. Otherwise, she should be considered an atheist. Oh, yes. And so when we talk about how if a believer has a wife who doesn't believe and she agrees to live with him, then he shouldn't divorce her. That is absolutely contra Plutarch. Yeah, and that makes sense with like the first Peter, oh, the Peter passage with yep. um, wives. Okay, yeah. yeah. And it's the same thing. A woman who has, or a woman who has a husband who doesn't believe, and he agrees to live with her, then she shouldn't divorce him either. So it assumes that a wife does not have to adopt her husband's religion. Yeah, and that's no forced I've, conversions here. I've never seen that before. That oh, is that's great insight, Nick. That is incredible. That that is unheard of in the ancient world that I've seen in the literature I've read. This is Paul. I love this. Yeah, right, so. and in that First Peter context, it assumed this um, this paradigm where um, the wife was be, would be expected to adopt her husband's religion, even though she was a Christian. Yep. And so that's interesting. Yeah. So this is all in the backdrop here that yep. we didn't even think about. Yep. And so, all right. So we'll go through. We'll do a chap, uh, verses one to seven, then eight to eleven, then twelve to sixteen, just kind of as units. So we'll kind of go through there. Yeah. So I'll. St- Let's see. So let's go back to that um, first verse. Um, now about what you wrote. It's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. <laughs> um, so it's interesting because we're not all together sure. Is this um, a question that is this some is it their seminar semin, uh, Sorry, is this their uh, summary of what Paul said? 
or and Paul's correcting them is this just a question that they have um are they just going like full-blown to escape um sexual immorality we must not have sex with anyone maybe um not even your husband or wife so it's kind of you can kind of or is it mass confusion because i mean they're praising a man for having sex with his his stepmother so maybe it's just they have really they're obviously confused like obviously this whole letter (laughs) this is vegas baby this is like the strip club of the ancient world so everyone's doing horrible things with everyone so this kind of comment is it's just an odd comment. It shows they don't understand Paul. And so basically, yeah. I think Paul is kind of setting. It's like, uh, so husbands shouldn't have sex with their wives. It's bad. Yeah, and Paul's like, well, I mean, <laughs> well... <laughs> each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband because of sexual immorality or yeah. pornea. The pornea obviously talked about in chapters five and six right before. So this is kind of, I think Paul's response, marriage is a response to what we saw earlier on. Yeah. At least not to be limited to that. Yeah, that's the big thing here, because some people will take, and actually, um, so nowadays, I guess maybe in Christian culture now, it's Mm. um, more about the cult of marriage, where suddenly, yeah, if you're married, like Nick and I noticed that, unfortunately, like, we suddenly became a little more visible sometime in some circles because we got married, Mm -hmm. um, which is not okay, and especially, like, when um, single people are... Uh, discriminated against for church positions and other things but you must be married in order to be a pastor yep but other parts of church history it was all about being single yep you know so yeah and that's paul's desire he's like i wish all people were like me you know single and more mobile perhaps more focused on on the lord perhaps you know not on pleasing your spouse yeah although again like the mistake is to try to take one portion of what paul's saying addressing Mm -hmm. a specific situation and idolize and put that up on a pedestal so again like we went to ephesians 5 where husband and wife relationship was an analogy for christ in the church Mm -hmm. you know and some some people gravitate towards that make that up on high yeah Yeah. so you know as we read this it's not the end all um but let's just follow kind of the logic of it yeah it's ad hoc but it's not uh, unapplicable to our yeah exactly well, especially definitely with, not ours yeah oh yeah but even with the preponderance of single people in seminary and in the church yeah. this is a good word for them it's yeah you're probably more like paul than we are in a at least in that sense at least according to this text ephesians 5 not so much but yeah and he's talking about monogamy and sexual immorality so yeah again like he's telling them and they have problems with sexual immorality mm-hmm. very obviously and that'll pop up all over the letter um he's saying you know, for the, this is a reason why you should have your own husband or your own wife. Mm-hmm. The husband should meet his wife's sexual needs, which assumes, interestingly, that a wife has sexual needs in the yep. ancient world. Yep. I mean, that just think about that. We, th- we, we assume, oh, yeah, my wife has certain needs and desires. The ancient people didn't really seem to think like that. It was about pleasing your husband, how to please your husband. And so the fact that Paul tells him the husband should meet his wife's sexual needs... And the wife should do the same for the husband. Immediately, we have a counterbalancing, a mutuality that's already been laid as a foundational kind of yeah. paradigm for how sex. And of course, sex is not about sex. Sex is about emotional well-being, about spiritual well-being. It's about knowing your spouse more. Yeah, than just, sex is never just sex. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's had sex knows sex is not just about sex. And so that's verse three. I think kind of it lays kind of a great little paradigm of what the other spouse owes to the other person at a baseline level. Yeah, and again, like, uh, another key thing here is, I think, our wider culture, and frankly, a lot of us in the church, too, even though a lot of us talk a good game of um, being, of sexual morality, um, mm-hmm. sometimes, like, there are certain sins that they tend to um, uh, gravitate towards more mm-hmm. and ignore. Um, yeah. 
I mean, there's a lot of sexual immorality in the church. Yep. Um, a lot. And a lot of it, um, a lot of people make a lot, I'll just say it, about homosexuality. But frankly, like, there are other sexual sins that are rampant. Yep. And um, the, Paul here is advocating for um, singleness or staying within the marriage. Yep. And... Uh... Building off that, uh, the yep. wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And if you stopped right there, every man in Corinth was like, hell yeah, you know, chest bumping, yeah. each other fist bump. Like, yep, yeah, that's right. You're telling me exactly what I want to hear. Thanks for Christologic. Thanks for making this the, the bedrock, Paul. We appreciate it. Yeah. And actually, there's a funny uh, thing. So back in my high school days, apparently it was a tradition during the graduation for um, the men, or I guess you could say they're boys because they're still in high school, yeah, they're boys. but you know, to read this part of the verse, like they just like interrupt the ceremony and read just this part of the verse. The wife doesn't have authority over him by the husband does. Um, yep. Stop right it there. It was a big thing. Like, are we going to do it? Um, actually the, the men at our, at my high school graduation were more mature and they said, you know, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. But, yeah. um, so it's kind of funny, but Back to what we were saying um, before on Ephesians 5, um, people like to cut off verse 22, you know, women, wives submit to your husbands from verse 21, submit to yep. one another of reverence for Christ. Same thing here. So yep. the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Yep. Each one in isolation sounds pretty damning, but again, read Taken it all. Together, it's, it's a, I think Richard Hay said something to the effect of, uh, this is unparalleled mutual like love in the ancient world. The fact that uh, a sexual authority over the other is, is something that the person doesn't exercise over the other or that yeah. you don't have over the other. They get to exercise it. So this, you know, the problem of rape and, the, uh, of rape and, uh, and stuff like this or sexual assault um, is nullified here. Uh, it's just it's if a wife says no, full stop, no. If a husband says no, full stop, no. And the Greek verb for it is uh, exudziadzo means to have power or have authority um it's i mean if you use it in the noun form it refers to powers in 1 corinthians 15 and ephesians 1 so these it's a, it's the common word most common word one of the more common words in the new testament for actual having authority yeah and the so in first timothy uh the first timothy passage um this is not the same word mm -mm. like so in that one it would the uh, um exercise authority or assume authority um, it's the only time the word occurs in the whole New Testament. Yep. Um, and so, again, another reason why the passage is, as a whole, is seen as more obscure. Yep. Here, you know, this is the common term for authority. Yep. Um, this well, is the every, a king would have authority over. Every New Testament person knows that this word is the it's one of the primary words. It's not you don't have to go to uh, outside the New Testament to understand it. Yeah, it, it's it's kingly language. It's uh, yeah, it, it's a rule. Yeah, so here's a question for you, because here, um, people always like to do this when it's um, about, so here the passage is saying, husbands should not see themselves as having authority over their wife, but their wife does, and you know, the same for women. But some people want to limit this only to sex. So for some reason, there's hierarchical relationships in other every other area except for sex. And again, what, what do you think of that, Nick? I think the issue, um, aside from that, the issue I mentioned earlier about sex is never just about sex. That's yeah. reductionistic, and that sounds more like the world, I think, than what the New Testament yeah. teaches. But another issue is um, is the issue of soma in uh, in here, the somatos, uh, body. Where? In, in, in verse 4. In verse 4. Uh, exercise authority uh, over oh. their own body. And so soma in, in, 
in Paul's the theology is something that does not is not limited to the sexual component of the human person it's the totality of the human person yeah soma is resurrected soma is given uh resurrection life in 1 corinthians 15 so to limit this to sex assumes a a reductionistic view of soma which sounds more like gnosticism than it does christian theology soma is the totality of what she is as a person in christ yeah and i tend to take um this verse four as kind of the rationale for why um why you treat each other well sexually. Yeah. Um, why you should only go to your husband for or your wife to, mm-hmm. for sex. Um, yeah. It's not supposed to be something that, oh, oh, you only have mutuality in the bedroom. It's more of a holistic understanding of the um, husband and wife relationship that goes into um, relation, parts of the relationship like sex. Yeah, and there's, there is a Greek word for the bodily organ you know, for sex. And Paul doesn't use it here. So Soma indicates he's thinking of more than just the sexual organ. Mm. He's thinking about the whole person. And that includes your mind, that includes your heart, that includes everything. As he talks about in verse five, don't deprive one another. That's, you know, submitting to one another. Do not deprive one another, except for harmony's sake for a time. And then you have talk about prayer and fasting in verse five. So this is a direct sex and your spiritual life are directly tied to one another. Yeah. And so it's, again, it's reductionistic. It's Gnost- It's about Gnosticism, and it's about a, a disdain, I think, um, for how the, the marriage is to be conducted in terms of mutuality. It, this is the most blatant mutual. Yeah. I mean, Maybe yeah. that's why it's left out of gender theology. Well, it's so simple. It's, it's, it's yeah. the, the parallelism is exact for the husband, for the wife, for the husband, for the wife. It's, it's monotonous reading. I'm wondering, okay, too, so... Oftentimes, people will use some of these passages, so like, don't refuse to meet each other's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, they'll t- oftentimes, I've seen this kind of thing turned on women um, to oh, say gosh. that basically, you're not allowed, if your husband wants to have sex, you're not allowed to say no. Uh-huh. I know. And, and that's pretty disturbing thinking, it's I gross. think. Yeah. yeah, it is. And I've read this in um, all sorts of like more practical christian literature that's supposed to be telling women how to be good wives like yeah. um from from a from a guy's person a christian guy's perspective what would you say to that what would i say could you narrow it down just a little bit more so every time the husband wants to have sex the mm-hmm. wife has to say yes because you know in the after all in the past do not deprive one another yeah except for harmony's sake i'd say if i'm the one who's always demanding sex or if i have a right to sex that is not harmonious yeah, and maybe there's a problem there, too, oh. if you're always <laughs> Maybe to. I'm just kind of a person. I mean, some yeah. guys need it, you know, a couple times a week. Yeah. And that's, but that's something that needs to be discovered in a harmonious relationship with your wife. And to the extent where you do not deprive her of what she needs. Yeah. It's not about, I mean, marriage, I mean, this is the most basic thing I was taught. Uh, marriage is never about you. It's about building up your spouse, about loving her or him. Yeah. And making them a better person. Be- making them more like Jesus. And so in this, like... In this same manner, the husband does not exercise authority, but his wife does. Yeah. The wife can say, sorry, honey, no. And if she does... Just not tonight. (laughs) Yeah, not tonight. You know, tomorrow... I'm not feeling well. Yeah. And the husband should have the good, godly character to say, okay. And of course, there's a problem if that's like every night forever. Oh, yeah. I mean... Then there's a marital problem. Don't deprive one another forever. I mean, you're married. Get busy. You know, have fun, you know, and stuff like that. But but the, the... Christ is kind of the center of your marriage. And if all you're doing is, if only the husband is demanding such things, which a husband should never demand sex. Yeah. husband has no right to his wife's body. Yeah, in exactly. In this, like, in this passage, um, you're, you're supposed to think of yourself as not having 
authority and is the other having authority yep. and then the reverse and it's the authority to say no i mean sometimes exercising authority over someone is saying no and that that's just the basis of it and i mean i've heard people also go to verse six and say but this is paul's allowance not a command and mm. i'm like well i think this is holy sacred scripture paul is allowed to make that distinction but an allowance is still a command if it comes from paul if we're talking about the authority of scripture and the and how scripture is to influence our lives although what comes next so i'm saying this to you uh to give you permission it's not a command i wish all people were like me but each has a particular gift from god one has this gift and another has another so i think he's launching into the singleness now he is yes so he's basically (laughs) saying yes i'm talking about um sexuality i'm talking about authority between husbands and wives Mm -hmm. but i'm basically saying i'm not trying to say you have to get married yeah um, this is a permission. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, he thinks it's better um, he desires to be single. It. Yeah, he desires. Yeah. It's Thelu. I desire all people, not men, all people yeah. to be as him. And that's single. And he does say, um, so even though he wishes everyone was like he is now, um, he says um, each has a particular gift from God. Mm-hmm. One has this gift, another has that one. So he seems to think of really think of marriage as a gift and he thinks of singleness as a gift as well Mm -hmm. and he says but i say to the unmarried and the widows it's good for them to remain like i am but if they cannot control themselves be married yep you know it's an imperative i think uh let me actually double check that so i don't sound stupid uh (laughs) that is yeah it's an it's an aorist imperative i was right let them marry it is better to marry than to be uh to burn with sexual passion or probably illicit that's probably a reference to pornea back in verse two do not um yeah, better to marry yeah. than to seek pornea or to something like and that. And again, this is a context where sexual immorality is a big problem. Yep, as and I already mentioned in chapters 5 and So, six. I mean, so given our culture that's very much about you can sleep with whoever you want, whenever yep. you want. Um, yep. Even like, it's kind of twisted, but even um, a lot of feminist movements have become hmm. such that they're saying that you're li- somehow liberated by um, passing yourself off to other men and or women. Or women. Yeah. yeah. And this is just not how um, Paul or the Bible thinks of sex at no, all. Not even close. Paul Paul viewed marriage as husband between a man and a woman, hopefully forever. But then we get into talk about divorce right here, which is in verse um, ten and uh, through sixteen. So do you want to? So uh, CEB says we'll just say it real quick, ten through eleven, just mm-hmm. to kind of give context. Yeah, go ahead. And passing on the Lord's command to those who are married. So this nice yep. little bit of Jesus tradition here. So We're now going. it's the Lord's command. Yep. <laughs> then sh- that then she. Or I'm sorry, uh, a wife shouldn't leave her husband. But if she does leave him, then she should stay single, single like Paul, or be reconciled to her husband. And a man shouldn't divorce his wife. So you get, again, the same kind of parallelism. Yeah, the Bible is not very keen on divorce. Yeah. Um, but it's maybe that's a whole other subject to talk yeah. about. Um, there are, I think it's best to think in terms of who breaks the covenant. And yeah. it's not necessarily the one who fills out the paperwork. Yeah. Um, in a sense, if someone sleeps with another person, they are breaking the marriage covenant. They've broken it. Yeah. Um, if, um, I think in the Old Testament, I think I've mentioned this before, um, in, in a context where a wife was dependent on her husband for livelihood, to eat, um, for everything, um, if he didn't do provide for her, then he, she could leave him so that she can marry someone else. Someone who will actually. It was actually for her. a second wife. Um, yeah. That was you know no longer the favorite or something. Yeah. Um. So anyway, all this to say, um, it's saying no. You know, you don't leave your husband. 
Um, that's not to say there's no circumstance. And no. I think it'll kind of get into one of the circumstances here. Yeah. In verse 11, um, but even, but if, you know, so you have the aim, yep. if she should ever separate or divorce, let her remain unmarried yep. or be reconciled. I think this is actually an implicit justification for women in ministry because if she separates and, and stays single, then she's like Paul. Oh, me- I see. Meaning she can serve in the church. I mean, Paul, I mean, there's plenty of single women in the church. Yeah, Paul tends to like single single people for ministry. Yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate that um, passages in First Timothy, for instance, get used against not just women. Um, but single guys. A one-woman man. But yeah. suddenly like, oh, you have to be married. It's like, no. And you have to have children. No, it's about not being sexually immoral. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, there's a baseline level. Do yeah. not be sexually immoral. Then we can talk about whether or not you're married or single. Yeah. Um, so she should separate uh, and all that kind of stuff. So okay, verse, so let's get into the next, so 12. So verse 12. I'm telling everyone else, the Lord didn't say this specifically. If a believer has a wife who doesn't believe and she agrees to live with him, then he doesn't divorce her. If a woman has a husband who doesn't believe and he agrees to live with her, then she shouldn't divorce him. The husband who doesn't believe belongs um. to God because of his wife. And the wife doesn't believe belongs to God because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be contaminated by the world, but now they are spiritually set apart. Something interesting. This, not to commit a lexical fallacy, but the uh, if he or she assents or agrees to live with them, the unbelieving partner, um, that's a combination of soon, with, and yodikeo, to delight. Hmm. And so if they, uh, it's about mental assent, approval, willingness. It's, it's, a syner- it's not synergistic, but there is a sense in which you have to mentally and spiritually assent to be with this partner. And so it assumes agency on the part of the, the woman here. Yeah. That she agrees to live with him. Yeah. Um, for he is not to leave her and stuff like that. So it's yeah. a very interesting kind of language. If she agrees to live with him, then he shouldn't divorce her. Yeah. And this was getting back to what you were saying Plutarch, earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the same thing with verse 13, same exact thing, just flipped. If a woman has a husband who doesn't believe and he agrees to live with her, then she shouldn't divorce him. That assumes that women had the right to divorce men. Okay. Going back uh, forward a little into verse 15. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I'll, I'll read the whole 15. Mm-hmm. Um, but if a spouse who doesn't believe chooses to leave, then let them leave. The brother or sister isn't tied down in this in these circumstances. God has called you to peace. I remember you had an insight. It's yeah. not really tied down. No, the CEB kind of misses this one. It's a doulos. It's a duleo to enslave. So she is not uh, tied or uh, enslaved to him. Rather, she is liberated. She is free to she's the lord's woman yeah and so that's interesting because earlier it was said um basically if you divorce and you just better get reconciled with your husband or remain Mm -hmm. single Mm -hmm. but in this instance you know no you don't have to be enslaved yeah to circumstance so it seems like the other circumstance was if you divorce someone and this is again in my in my view if you're not if the other person hasn't already broken the covenant um, this is you having problems with your spouse, not being reconciled to your spouse, mm-hmm. and just divorcing them. Um, but in this case, it seems like you are the one that's been left. Yep. Uh, you are not enslaved by the brother or sister. So he's talking about, yeah. I mean, he's talking about both genders here. This yeah. is powerful stuff. That they are not, uh, yeah, they are not a slave or enslaved to that person. And uh, that's a very powerful statement, especially to women in abusive situations yeah. or men in abusive situations. Yeah. I mean, seriously, like there are some people that want to say, no, the person has to actually sleep with someone else in order for you to write up the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, really, how bad does it have to get? Like, you yeah. know, do they have to tie you to a chair and light you on fire? Like, yeah. and you 
you still can't. Yeah. If they separate, divorce. let them be separate. Yeah. You are not enslaved to that bad situation. Yeah. Or that, that separation. Um, and verse 14, I think, is a, kind of a firestorm in a lot of debates. So we'll, get, we'll tackle that real quick. Is that yeah. right? All right. So uh, the word that the CEB uses is um, doesn't believe belongs to God. I actually don't like this translation now that mm. I look at it. Wait, okay, wait, wait read, read verse the section. 14, verse 14. Okay, let's see. Um, I'll read it. Um, the husband who doesn't believe belongs to God because of his wife, and the wife who doesn't believe belongs to God because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be contaminated by the world, but now they're spiritually set apart. I don't like this translation because uh, ah. the language is of sanctification. <laughs> yeah, so it's, true. It's a uh, hagiadzo to sanctify, to set apart, to be made holy. The the, the unbelieving husband is made holy by C-E-D, his wife. C E D, let us down. <laughs> uh, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by her husband. This is sanctification. This is Ephesians five kind of language. Yeah, and in Ephesians five, the language is used for the husband regarding to regards to wife. Here mm-hmm. it's the wife in regards to yep. husband. Huh. Yep. And, you know, and your children are unclean, but they are now holy. Have, and so you get into, you know, kind of the issue of do, uh, you know, mar- intermarriage and stuff like that in the households and stuff like that. But here it's it's very clear. You are sanctified by your wife of, or your husband if you are an unbeliever. Or I'd even say if you are a believer, your, your wife will sanctify you, make you a better person, make you more like Christ. And same with your husband. I wonder if this gets into, because, I mean, different cultures have different understanding of clean and unclean. Mm-hmm. And so you can be ceremonially unclean, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I'm wondering if it's addressing this here. So if you have an unbelieving spouse, you're not... And it gets back to, this is also why you don't just divorce them. Yeah. Um, they're clean. They're ceremonially clean because of you. There's also the yeah. issue of honor and shame, too. Yeah. I think so. He is uh, not shamed by her or hmm. she is not shamed by him. And the children are not unshamed either, but they are instead, they are holy. And so it, it, the, the, the passage itself is a little more difficult to kind of parse out what does it yeah. mean for soteriology and stuff like that. But at its base level, the unbelieving partner is sanctified by the believing partner. And, of course, we're not going to limit that to, you know, uh, an unbelieving marriage or an inter-believing uh, slash unbelieving marriage. You are, if you're a good Christian man or woman, you are constantly sanctifying and making your husband or wife set apart and holy. Yeah. And Jesus is the great sanctifier. Yeah. And it's a continual process. It's a journey of sanctification. Hence why he was able to touch uh, people that were considered ceremonially unclean because yep. they were diseased or whatever, you know, it yep. was. And the capstone, the great capstone to this text yes. is verse 16. Um, I'll read it again from the CEB. Um, how do you know as a wife if you will save your husband? Or how do you know as a husband if you will save your wife? Again, it's how do you know oh wife it's evocative why he's addressing the wife first too it is so terry it, it's the salvation yeah it's language. so language so earlier we were getting more into sanctification and now it's actually salvation mm-hmm. so or how do you know yeah. oh wife if you shall deliver or liberate or save your husband or do you know oh husband same exact kind of language you'll save your wife. if you'll save your wife if you'll save your wife yeah, so an, an, an additional reason not to just divorce someone because yeah. they have a different religion from yeah. you. Yeah, if you're married into it and you become a Christian, if she becomes a Christian later in life, don't automatically divorce. See if you can woo and woo your husband or woo your, your wife you know, yeah. to Christ. And being that godly influence, you will save your husband. And your children will be saved too because of your, your witness yeah. and your, and your character. Yeah. Who knows? And so, but this, again, we kind of get in the language of, oh, only a husband is kind of the spiritual head or only the husband is the spiritual authority. And I'm like, here, I'm like, no. no, they're both the sanctifiers. Yeah, they're both sanctifiers. Yeah, although, you know, it's interesting. And again, this this more, I think, reveals the paradigm that we come from mm-hmm. approaching the text. Um, some people want to um, limit it only to 
Um, so, for instance, the wife is only the sanctifier because the husband's a non-Christian. Mm-hmm. Rather than seeing this as a whole worldview that's being applied to specific um, situations. It's the same thing where, oh, sex is only about sex. And it's like, yep. no. Nope. Oh, it, it only addresses sex, so therefore, nope, we're not going to. It's like, if you don't like yeah. what the text says and you can't think big picture and all this sort of thing, then that's your problem. Mm. The text is so fervently mutual that it's almost it's 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 monotonous reading in greek it's just same thing and so no have the courage the text says this it's not as if it it's not as if the text stays in the first century guys like this is god's word to us and if you're in a relationship that if you're both christians you know husband and wife how does verse 14 through 16 verses 14 through uh, 16 address you yeah, and you know, here's another... Are you saying this scripture doesn't address you because one of you is not a Christian? No, you're both married, you're in Christ. Another did... question is, what is the basis hmm. for um, mutuality in the bedroom? So if you're a complementarian, and what is the basis for mutuality in the bedroom as opposed to not hierarchy in other every other place? And I, I would think you have to kind of um, think through your reasons why you apply it to one and not the other. What is the basis? I, I think, and this is going off what I think Wayne Grudem says, so don't quote me on this. Right. His big thing is, well, Ephesians 5 teaches male headship. Therefore, if a man is a good leader, he will not be dominative in bed. Right, but uh, why? Well, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. Just to give kind of rational, I think the husband is not the Why head. can't he just be a servant leader in the bed? Yeah. <laughs> That yeah. sounds weird, but it does sound kind of creepy, actually. Yeah, let's but, let's move. Yeah, yeah let's move on. So, in, in summation, this text is a simple text. It is not. There's nothing disputed here. Grammar. There's no weird Greek word uh, that requires endless word studies. We all know what this text says, and so, at its most baseline level, this text says in marriage, not just related to sex, because we all know sex is not limited just to the marriage bed. Yeah, the body belongs yep. to the other. Yeah. Yep. Um sanctification and holiness and living godly lives and fleeing sexual immorality and finding your your uh your pleasure but also your 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 spiritual vitality in Mm. your spouse um and and building her up or building him up to be more like jesus and you keep pushing that and you keep looking at this is the journey you're both on together this is a mutual journey you're both on do not and do not limit this to sex or to these one little things because frankly this text speaks to me and i'm i'm a christian i'm married a christian yeah. this text speaks to me just as clearly and so I, I think get a little bit of imagination with this it's very clear what it says why don't we live it yeah scripture is fully authoritative and applies to our lives even if it doesn't fit your exact paradigm hmm. yeah so we wish we had um more sources to recommend to you off of this but unfortunately hmm. There's a very, there's a huge lack of literature on this. And it's not that no one ever covers it. Um, we, we noticed Payne had like two or three pages or so in yeah, his book. A, a chapter dedicated, but it's a small chapter because yeah. it's a very basic ch- chapter of 1 Corinthians. Yeah, but weird. the thing is there does need to be more on it. Um, the only one that we could really um, find it in our hearts to recommend was Ron Pierce's work. He's, both a, he's a professor of both, both, of, uh, both of our prof. Uh, yeah. I can't speak anymore. He was both of our professor there back in the day go. at Biola. At Biola. And he's yeah. still teaching at Biola. So. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, find the Priscilla Papers article. Yeah, it's... Um, that I'll way you, you I'll can give you look the citation. it up. Uh, Priscilla Papers 223.3, 2009. Um, so yeah, I can uh, we can put the, uh, the PDF on our page or put a link to it. I don't think we... Yeah, you can really find this at uh, CBE's website so um 
go visit there. They have tons of sources, um, including this article. It's a great. It starts from verse one, goes to verse forty. He tackles. Yeah, much. we'll see if we can put a link to their webpage. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great article. It changed my mind on it. Um, they even have an article. I, I forget. This might be a, a few issues back where they were talking about. Um, how women were perceived as the sexually vigorous ones through history. <laughs> so it was kind of a hilarious one because, you know, nowadays, like, it's oftentimes emphasized that, the man at least the in Christian who... circles, that the man is the one that always wants sex. And it was just funny to read, like, apparently the Puritan men not wanting oh, to, had to be persuaded to have sex with their wives who were so voracious, oh, <laughs> like, coming so on to them. I mean, that just goes to say, some Christian women are lions. It may maybe. be that maybe when it's your duty to do something, you don't want to do it. And so or that kind of kills the movie. maybe when Paul says you owe it to your spouse to do to fulfill their needs, women have needs too, bro. So. <laughs> anyway, so there's lots of good things at CBE. So yes. check out their Ron page. Pierce's article is the best one. And next week we'll be talking, or next time, not next week. We won't have time next week. We'll <laughs> be talking about 1 Corinthians 11 and the issue of hair and veils. Yes, and more sexual morality. <laughs>